you can open to John chapter 15. In your Bibles or Bible app, would you be so kind as to find John chapter 15? Took last week and we're taking this week in this rich, rich section of the Gospel of John chapter 15. Emily is going to pray for us and read our passage this morning. John 15. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. We pray that um, your Holy Spirit would be active uh, during the preaching of your word, that you would help us to hear what is needful, and that we can all um, see Christ as more beautiful and more present than we did when we came, came in this morning. Um, I pray you would focus our attention and uh, give us ears to hear. In your name, amen. John 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you these things i command you so that you will love one another the word of the lord thank you emily thought it might be helpful brief reminder of why this two-week little mini-series i mentioned last week how Political polarization and COVID controversies have produced what one pastor has called a state of emergency in the evangelical church. Another has called it the great sort. So the past few years have been challenging for many, many churches, including our own. On top of that, we live in the least affordable city in the country in terms of housing costs. Isn't that wonderful? And as a result, we've had many dear friends move away for understandable reasons. It's been a, a challenging two, three years, and we should be honest about that. So last week I asked, what might build our faith from this passage? Now I want to ask, what should define our faithfulness from this passage? I once heard a, passage, a pastor named Rankin Wilborn comment on our incurable tendency, our incurable tendency to evaluate churches by noses, nickels, and noise. <laughs> noses, nickels, and noise, basically... 
attendance and income, giving and attention. He said, from King Saul's envy of David's greater numbers to David's own insistence on a census, it's a besetting sin to lift our faces by counting numbers. So he said, some react to this focus on metrics by accenting faithfulness, doing a job well by being faithful over time. And I personally think that's good. I think that's good. But it raises a question for us, like I mentioned, how should we define faithfulness? How define faithfulness as a church? If not noses, nickels, and noise, if not those metrics, how do we know when we're being faithful? What are the goalposts we're aiming for? What's the yardstick we should use for faithfulness? We need to know that as a church, and you need to know that as an individual disciple. How should you Define faithfulness in your own walk with Christ. And certainly there are many answers we could give. Many answers we could give. But Jesus gives us a one-word answer in this passage. Love. Love is essentially how he defines faithfulness here. Specifically, following his pattern of love is how he defines faithfulness. That's the point I want to derive and envision us with this morning. I hope we catch a vision for our own church and our own lives this morning. That following Jesus' pattern of love is how we must define faithfulness. Following his pattern of love is how we are to define faithfulness right here. And we see that in three ways. Three ways to follow Jesus' pattern of love. First, follow Jesus' pattern of obedient love. Follow his pattern of obedient love. We are again in Jesus' farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye to his disciples. He just described himself as the true or genuine vine and we his branches. And he said that the fruit he's seeking to bear in our lives is that which proves that we are his disciples. Verse 8. That's the crop, the, the harvest Jesus is after in our lives, the fruit of genuine discipleship. And now he begins some specific application. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me... So I have loved you. Now, those words deserve a lifetime of reflection. We have not just stepped into the deep end of the pool. We've stepped into the depths of the ocean. And there's no hope of touching the bottom here in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, as, as God the Son has always been and always will be loved by the Father. So Jesus welcomes his people into that world of perfect love. 
C.S. Lewis talked about the inner ring, the in crowd that we all want to belong to. Here's the ultimate inner ring, God's triune life of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I open up that love to you just as the Father has loved me, just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says in verse 9, abide in my love, or remain. Remain in my love. Remain, I think you could say, remain in the enjoyment of my love. But how? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide or remain in my love just as, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you see the pattern? It's there in those words, just as. Verse 9 begins with those words, and here they are again in verse 10. There's one word behind these two words, just as, just as. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide or remain in his love. It is a pattern he sets for us of obedient love. Now, just to be clear, there is no hierarchy in the eternal trinity. Three co-equal, co-eternal persons in one divine essence. No hierarchy there. In my view, no eternal headship and no eternal submission in the Godhead. Three co-equal, co-eternal persons in one divine essence, but to undertake our salvation, to pursue our rescue, the Son has kept the Father's commandments, and so, he says, remains in his love. And we are to trace that pattern with our own lives. This obedient love. Now you might be thinking, I thought I was saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What's obedience got to do with that? And you're right. You do not earn or merit Christ's love. You do not earn or merit Christ's love. But according to this verse, remaining, remaining in your experience of or maybe enjoyment of his love relates to keeping his commandments. I don't think it's unlike the relationship between a parent and a child. The child disobeys the parent. They are not removed from the parent's love. The, the child is not kicked to the curb. But the child's experience of the parent's love, the child's enjoyment of the parent's love might change. There might be some loving consequences that are brought. I think that's at least an analogy of how we could think about this as Jesus calls us to remain in the enjoyment of his love. But if you think that Obeying Jesus is some dry duty. Behold verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and your joy may be full. It seems Jesus' obedience here to the Father grounds his joy and provides the pathway for his joy to be in us and our joy to be full, filled with his joy, his joy in us. I hope you're saying, sign me up. I mean, teenagers, kids, can I, can I just get your attention for a moment? If you think that obedience to Jesus is dull and dry, if you think that God is keeping you from the good stuff in life, may I ask you to consider how well that perspective lines up with verse 11? Jesus wants your joy to be full with his joy in obeying the Father. He's not keeping you from the good stuff. He's offering you the good stuff. Fullness of joy. His joy in you. Follow his pattern of obedient love. For others, maybe, maybe you have a hard time connecting obedience and love. That feels like a short circuit to you. You read this passage and your starting point is obey. Jesus is your drill sergeant. Jesus is your taskmaster. Obey is all you hear. Let me remind you, that's not Jesus' starting point. His starting point is verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me. This, this incredible ocean of love. So have I loved you. His starting point is the love the Father has always had for the Son. The same love, he says, he extends to you in Christ. So you are loved beyond your wildest dreams. That might be your takeaway point this morning. You are loved beyond your wildest imagination. You cannot conceive of how greatly you are loved by God. And the one who loves you like that says, I want you to remain in the enjoyment of my love. So keep my commandments. Start with the love of God. Bask in that ocean until it fuels glad-hearted obedience. So we are to follow this pattern of obedient love. But what is the obedience Jesus specifically has in mind. And that's quite wide-ranging. We need a little more information, and that's what he gives to us next. Secondly, I would say it's a call to follow Jesus' pattern of sacrificial love. To secondly, secondly, follow Jesus' pattern of, of sacrificial love. And I think this is really the heart of the passage, beginning in verse 12. He goes on, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice something. Jesus' commandments, plural in verse 10, are now summed up in one commandment, singular in verse 12. Love one another. Love one another. That assumes love for God. Love for God is the basis of and prerequisite for genuine love for each other. But don't miss this. Jesus sums up his commandments, plural, with this one commandment in verse 12, love each other. 
He sums up the, the fruit, the fruit that shows that we are his, the fruit of genuine discipleship. He sums up that harvest he's after in our lives with obedience to this one primary command. Love each other. That's, that's his summary commandment, his summary vision for discipleship. And so, his summary vision for our faithfulness. In summary, Jesus commands, love one another. Now, you might be struggling with that idea of a command to love. You can't command love, you might be thinking. Love is a feeling. Love is emotion. Love flows from the heart. And I think you're right, certainly in ways. I mean, we were just told how the Father loves the Son from all eternity. Surely that's an intensely felt love the Father has for his eternally begotten Son. You know, just love in the gospel accounts how at various points, like Jesus' baptism, the Father just breaks in, this is my beloved Son. Surely that's an intensely felt love. The Apostle Paul talks about having the affection, the affection of Christ Jesus for his people. So yeah, I think genuine affection is an aspect of love. And yet, and yet, in Scripture, love is also defined by what it does and does not do. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There, in that passage, love is about what it does and does not do. Love there gets seen. Love goes public. So it seems to be a both and. Love seems to involve real affection and real actions. That seems to be Jesus' command for us, his vision of faithfulness for us. The pattern we are to follow. Look again at verse 12. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as or just as, just as I have loved you. So again, catch this. The Savior is providing the pattern, isn't he? The Savior is providing the pattern, affection and action, just as I have loved you. What does he have in mind? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the Savior defines his love in this instance by his sacrifice, laying down his life. Now certainly Christ did that for us uniquely. He was forsaken for our sins. We, he suffered wrath in our stead. He made atonement for our rebellion. And if you are here this morning and you've yet to turn to Christ and yet to believe on Jesus Christ like that, to take away your sins, I urge you to do so. I urge you to do so. This Savior loves you. 
What, what should stop you from surrendering to him and hoping only in what he has done to bring you to himself? Jesus uniquely laid down his life for us, but here he says that's a pattern for us as well, a pattern of sacrificial love. And don't fail, friends, to marvel at this pattern. He says he lays down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Only Abraham and by implication Moses in the Old Testament are called God's friends. Here, Jesus extends that amazing privilege to all of his people. He is still our Lord. Make no mistake. He is still our master. Make no mistake. He is still the one we must obey, yet he calls you his friend. And with that incredible privilege in mind, we follow his pattern of sacrificial love. That means we have to get specific in our love. In the comic strip Peanuts, the character Linus says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. You kind of get that, don't you? Love for mankind, I can do that. That's abstract. That's an idea. I don't have to do anything. Sacrificial love doesn't remain abstract. It's real affection and real action toward real people. So let's get more specific. Certainly, sacrificial love involves using our material goods to meet legitimate needs. Our material goods. In 1 John chapter 3, God says, By this we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Sound familiar? Then he says, if anyone has the world's goods, the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in action and truth. So God clearly connects, doesn't he? He clearly connects sacrificial love and using our stuff to meet legitimate needs. And you do this well. I want to say thank you. I want to encourage you for your faithfulness here. I don't know how many times we as elders find out about a need in the church after someone has met it. It's amazing. We love that. We, it's like we can't, we can't use benevolence funds in the bank because you've already met the need. And I think that so glorifies God. Thank you so much for your sacrificial love. Thank you. But here's maybe an area we don't think quite as much about. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love and how we hold our preferences and convictions. Sacrificial love and how we hold our preferences and even our convictions. You might be asking, Tab, where do you get that from? 
Well, I get that from the context. I get that from the group to whom Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 15. Jesus has, for instance, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot among his disciples before him in John 15. Tax collectors were considered traitors to their people. They were seen as selling out their own people for the Romans and Roman rule. The zealots were like violent revolutionaries wanting to throw off Roman rule by force. The revolt that happens three, day, three decades after this, the revolt against Rome, three decades later, the one to which the Romans respond by leveling the temple in Jerusalem to the ground, well, that revolt was led by the zealots. So Jesus has before him, in this scene in John 15, a despised, ta a despised tax collector, despised traitor, and a potentially violent revolutionary. I mean, imagine the side conversations between these two guys. Simon says to Matthew, you're an appeaser, Matthew. You let the Romans walk all over us. How could you do that? Sell us out, your own people. Matthew says to Simon, you just stock up on ammo. The ends justify the means for you, Simon. You just want to kill. You want to kill to retain power. I mean, you think we have political polarization? That's nothing compared to these guys. This is blue and red state on steroids, covered in gasoline, and lit on fire. And Jesus says to Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, I command you, love each other just as I have loved you. In other words, my command supersedes your preferences and convictions. My, my love, my love takes priority over your preferences and convictions. And so I command you, Matthew and Simon, to love each other. Is that, friends, also not what it looks like to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? Because it's not hard to love those who think like us. That's easy. It's a whole different thing when someone has different preferences or different convictions. That kind of love requires some sacrifice in our hearts. I'm not saying don't have convictions. I'm not saying don't be concerned about issues. I'm asking, do you love an issue more than you love a fellow Christian who disagrees on that issue? Let me say that again. Friends, do you find yourself loving an issue, loving your position, wanting to fight for your position. Do you love that more than you love a fellow Christian who disagrees on that issue? 
If so, then your greatest love seems to be the love of being right, not that person. And some sacrifice of priority may be needed. Isn't that what Matthew and Simon had to do? It might mean reaching out to and befriending someone here with some differing view because they are in Christ. Because you are in Christ that supersedes, takes priority over that difference. Or, you know what, it might just be like reaching out and befriending someone in a different season of life. Maybe the preference for you is you're married and you want to hang only with married couples. Or you're single, you only want to hang with single people. I, I get the preference. But maybe there's some sacrifice there that's needed. Reaching out to, befriending someone in a differing season of life. Married couples reaching out to single adults. Single adults reaching out to married couples. Laying down our lives. It could be sometimes as simple as that, couldn't it? It could be as simple as that. Friends, following Jesus' pattern of sacrificial love, sacrificial love is how we must define faithfulness. And you think we could stop there? Like, I think that's enough application, Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to a third element of this pattern. Third, follow Jesus' pattern of, I'll call it outward love. Follow Jesus' pattern of outward, outward love. Now look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Verse 16, here is God's electing love in Christ. And see why. See his purpose. I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go Go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, remain. He chose us in love to go. Go and bear fruit. How? When you hear Jesus say, go, what comes to your mind? Probably outreach, probably mission, and probably that's what is mainly in view. D.A. Carson notes as follows. Probably, probably the fruit primarily in view is the fruit that emerges from mission. The fruit, in short, the fruit that remains is new converts. Here's another pattern, another pattern of love we follow. At the end of John's gospel, the resurrected Jesus says to these guys, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And the Father sent his Son in love. And we follow that pattern of outward love. And yet, and yet, we don't go in our own strength, do we? Verse 16 continues, so that, notice, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you another, just like we saw last week, another powerful promise for prayer. And so as I encouraged you last week, I'm just going to be repetitive Friends, pray for our outward gospel mission. Pray for our outward mission with this good news. Pray for 
a, even a one life, at least one person, one person in your life to whom you can be reaching out with the love of Christ. Pray for that person. Pray for our outreach course in the fall called Life Explored. Pray and bring someone to that course. But maybe, maybe pray first and maybe foremost for a heart of love for those outside of Christ. A heart of love first. Think about it with me. How is the American evangelical church how is the American evangelical church thought of in our culture as a political voting block, as a group fighting for political power? We're not known in our culture for love, it seems to me. And that's a problem. Friends, that's a problem. There was an internet dust-up recently about Tim Keller, with some saying that his compassionate, winsome approach to those outside of Christ, his compassionate, winsome approach to the culture is it's out of date, that the culture has changed too much for that, that it's not a neutral world anymore toward Christians, it's a negative world toward Christians now, so compassion is out of fashion. And I want to ask, when has this world ever been neutral toward Christ and his people? And even if those around us were our, quote, enemies, or even if they counted us as their enemies, what does Jesus say about that? He says, love them. Love them. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Luke chapter 6. Miroslav Volf is a theologian who grew up in former Yugoslavia where he witnessed a bloody war. In an interview in Christianity Today, he told of a conversation with a Cuban woman who had fled from Cuba seeking refuge in the U.S. from Castro's regime. And certainly we understand that. She asked Volv, is it possible that Fidel Castro could come to believe in Jesus even on his deathbed and end up in heaven? And Volv said, yes. Then she said, if that's the case, I would not want to be in heaven. Now, I understand that in ways that others may hurt us terribly. I understand that others may do evil things. But brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to a different way, a different pattern. He says, not just love your friends, but love your enemies. Do good to them, bless them. In our us versus them culture, don't we need to recapture that? That the church would not be known for hating her enemies, but following this pattern. The pattern of the father who runs with open arms to embrace prodigals and sends us to run with open arms to them, just like he ran to you and me.
As the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. It's his pattern of outward love. I hope, friends, I hope the Spirit of God is envisioning you this morning. And I hope encouraging you. And I hope encouraging you. I hope he's encouraging you and giving you a vision for not evaluating churches by, quote, noses, nickels, and noise. Jesus provides better goalposts. He provides a better yardstick for our own faithfulness right here. Following his pattern of love, obedient love, sacrificial love, outward love. So Grace Church, my friends, dear Christian, let us follow his pattern of love as defining our faithfulness right here. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment just to